0: Hey folks, welcome back to the Traders for a Cause podcast. My guest this week is a very good friend of mine. He happens to be the man behind the Value Investor's Edge publication on Seeking Alpha and a maritime shipping expert, Mr. Jay Mintzmeyer. Jay, welcome to the show,
1: how are you? Hey, thanks, Zach, I'm, I'm glad to be on. I'm, I'm really excited that you've been doing this podcast and uh, I'm excited I made it on. I'm like, I'm not, it's not even guest number 10 yet. What, you said guest number nine? That's pretty yeah, cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, single thanks. Digits, I'm, baby.
1: I'm, yeah, I'm glad that I made it. Well, I'm glad to
0: have you. Thank you for doing it. And uh, I guess we'll just kick it off and and kind of like get a little background on you and how you got into maritime shipping stocks. So uh, what made you choose value investing in this particular sector? And you picked it as a specialty, you've kind of teed off on it. Uh, What was it that attracted you to maritime shipping and, and what fascinates you about it?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a good question because it's such an obscure part of the market, right? And, sure. you know, I, I started investing right around the global financial crisis back in, in 2008. And that's what sort of honed me in on value as, as a segment of the market, because I saw what happened when you didn't care about fundamentals. I saw what happened when people only looked at charts and and momentum and they didn't care about the underlying earnings and stuff like that. So that got me really interested in like the classical value type approach, you know, Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, those type, those type of approaches. So that was my overall framework. I was in college at the time as well. So I was learning, you know, economics, financial analysis, that sort of thing. But after spending a few years there, I realized that, you know, in large names, like, you know, Microsoft was a value name at the time, it's hard to believe that Microsoft was a value name, but it was (laughs) Uh, Apple at some points was, it was a value name, but you know, Someone like me who is at the time was a student and kind of blogging and and starting my own portfolio i had no chance of providing any sort of like you know edge in that market you know if apple moved up or microsoft moved up i could make money but it wasn't because of my you know jay mincemeyer's gift or anything like that it was just kind of like you know luck or or the fundamentals of that company and i'm not saying that i couldn't invest there you know i still do but i didn't you know have an edge and so i found shipping and another reason I found shipping was because it just had these huge volatile swings. I think folks probably remember a stock called dry ships it was it fun Oh one. we remember dry ships. Everybody remembers dry ships. That's it. Whenever whenever you see shipping, I was like, oh, is that like dry ships? <laughs> so, absolutely. so absolutely. So that that got me into the space. And I started realizing that shipping was an area where if you applied fundamental value analysis. And you had like a big picture macro view of what was going on in the world. You could really make an you could really make a killing in certain markets. You could find out what stocks you should probably avoid. You could find out what stocks had potential. I it didn't mean you won all the time or and whatnot. I you still make a lot of mistakes, but there was an area where I, as an individual, and now as a team, we have a team of five now, mm-hmm. could actually legitimately year after year after year outperform the market.
0: Incredible. So you think that maybe shipping as a sector is just often overlooked because it doesn't have the same sexiness that you know say tech does or or some of these other sectors
1: yeah well first of all most of the companies are really small there's only a handful of companies that are larger than 1 billion market cap most of them are anywhere from about 50 million to about six seven eight hundred million so almost no institutions can play in that sandbox Uh, There's hedge funds involved, but they're smaller boutique sort of family office type uh, hedge funds. They're not the big Goldman Sachs types. So that right away takes a lot of very smart, it's kind of like playing poker, right? Like that right away takes a lot of very smart whales out of the equation. And so you're left with a market that is a lot more uh, uninformed. There's a lot more information asymmetry another really cool thing about shipping is that well cool for us because we, we have access to all the data is that a lot of the shipping data is not readily available mm-hmm. to the to the public right you have to know where to look and I'm sure. not saying some of it's still free most of you have to pay for it which we do but some of it's free but you have to know where to look right. and so you know if you just see the headline you know Baltic dry index at record highs okay that's cool but what's the historical trends what are the underlying fundamentals you don't know that unless you subscribe to a data service mm-hmm.
0: got it Interesting. So, so the, the information just isn't as widely available. Exactly. So when you start digging into a certain stock, do you take more of a top-down approach where you're kind of like looking at the macro environment and then kind of drilling down to the company level, or do you go from the bottom up and you see something moving on the company level and then figure out what's driving it, how, which direction do you go to when you're, you know, starting off, like to doing a research project?
1: I think it's a little bit of both but big picture most often it, it's more top-down it's more saying you know what's the global economy looking like and what are the drivers of each individual segment Shipping's not a monolith it's actually six or seven different subsegments. Sure. there's completely different fundamentals for crude oil tankers than there are for dry bulk vessels than there are for container ships so you know we, we have to understand the supply and demand of each segment but sometimes we, we do a little bottom up. You know, we'll, we'll see a stock that has you know unusual volumes or is up 200% or down 50%. And we'll say, what's going on there? Or we might see a stock that's trading at a huge discount to its net asset value. And we say, okay, this stock is interesting. The management team checks out. Let's look a little bit more at the macro at the top. So it goes both directions.
0: Got it. Got it. So a lot of your picks uh, when you're talking about value investments. Obviously, you're looking at like a bull thesis for many of these stocks. But um, you know, a lot of traders like to trade both sides of the coin like to go short. Um, Do you do that? And you know, what would it take for you to see, or, or to at least, I guess, preach more of a bearish thesis on, you know, any of these stocks that you do research on?
1: Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a good question. And and we do a bit of pair trading ourselves, which is where you find two stocks that are very similar, like two dry bulk stocks, for instance, or two tanker stocks or container stocks. And you go along one of them, the cheaper one, the better positioned one, and, and you short the one that's more overvalued or has a sketchier management team or is likely to have like convertible debt outstanding or, or something sketchy. Right. So we do actually a lot of pair trading. I don't talk about my shorts publicly as much. Uh, it's first of all, look, I I used to write, um, I used to be more of like a 60, 40, 70, 30, where I'd be 60 bullish, 40 bearish or something. But honestly, like the vitriol and the public articles and the shorts, it just honestly, just wasn't worth it. Like, I'm just going to short this thing. I ain't going to warn you about it. And (laughs) we're going to do good on our own. So I, I honestly, I hate to say it like that. I hate to be so cynical, but sometimes this is not worth it to publish bearish research. I do it privately on our service. Like, yeah, we'll be bullish and bearish on our service. But publicly, yeah, I did like Jay Minsmart, like that dude's a 90, 95% <laughs> permable, but not really. Like I've been short several shipping names this year. I just okay. don't really, I don't really like forecast it. You just, <laughs> just don't get want on to, a bullhorn. and you
0: Yeah, know. you don't want to be, you
1: don't want to be an activist investor, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, look, I, I, I yeah, no, it's just not worth the, not worth the pain. I got it.
0: So, how would you position yourself for a potential downturn in the shipping sector? Obviously, it's been on a tear this year so far, but uh what would you do? I mean, would you sit on the sidelines? Would you go short? I mean, what, what, how would you position yourself uh, for a macro move like that?
1: Yeah. Uh, again, solid question. You know, you think of these things as cycles, and I, sometimes I like to turn it into almost like a baseball game and you talk about innings, right? It's like the first inning would be like, bottom of the market it's time to start buying it and ninth inning would be like we're super toppy and about the to collapse right right so, so I, I like to think of things in terms of innings and sure. you know as we get to the fourth fifth inning we start taking money off the table uh, right. we start dialing back our risk a little bit as we get to that and, and you never know the innings until hindsight but you have an idea right you you, do, you, you don't know if it's the fourth or the seventh but there's a difference between like the first and the eighth. right? So you get an idea of like where you're at based on historicals and stuff. And and as you get closer to the seventh, eighth, ninth inning, uh, that's when you start going into more pair trades, you take more cash off the table, you have a few more shorts. Uh, And so that's something, and you asked earlier, I didn't mean to like not answer the question. You asked what it would take for me to turn bearish on shipping. Right. And it takes shipping returning to a respectable multiple across the board. It takes retail investors clamoring into the stocks and bidding them up to record highs. We haven't seen shipping stocks trade at very high multiples since 2014, 2015. Right. Uh, so that's why I've been, uh, not only because I'm like <laughs> I'm like conscious of publishing bearish research, but that's one of the reasons I've been so permeable since 2016, 2017, sure. because that was the right side of the table to be on. I see. That makes sense so let's let's
0: take a little dive into your actual process because i feel like our audience is primarily consisting of of swing traders and day traders that i think could really benefit just from understanding exactly how we break down the analysis of these companies that you're doing research on whether you're a bear or a bull understanding how to create a valuation can create a thesis that ultimately you could trade on so Talk about some of the key metrics that you're looking for, like when you're breaking down one of these companies that you're going to research.
1: Yeah, the, the number one metric, it's not the end all be all, but the number one metric I look at is price to NAV. NAV is net asset value. So that is like the value of all the vessels, all the ships minus the debts. And you divide it by the stock count and you get what's called an NAV. And that's kind of like price to book. I think people are probably more familiar with that metric, but book value is an accounting value. Which is what the company paid for the ship but i don't care what they paid for it i care what it's worth today right and that's why we subscribe to those data services that provide us literally real time day-to-day-to-day to day to day, valuations of what the fleet goes for and that's those are real market values on the secondary market and so we can look at that and we can say where did this equity trade in relation to the underlying assets and so you can have instances where i'm literally buying one dollar worth of assets for 75 cents and so even right there you're getting a margin of safety because sure. even if you're wrong and it goes down a little bit you bought the things at a discount right right that's, that's one metric there's more but that's the big one
0: that's the big one okay good to know um when you are looking at this particular metric talk about some red flags like when you're looking at a, a company's balance sheet one of these shipping stocks what is it that you're looking for in the balance sheet that would jump out at you either with a a bullish or bearish uh case
1: absolutely so yeah you cannot just go. I'm so glad you asked that because you cannot just go off price to NAV. you right. also have to look at the management team you also have to look at the balance sheet you have to look at where you are in the cycle uh and and four or five other things so uh let's talk about balance sheets since you brought that up the first thing i would look at right off the bat is the liquidity and i'm talking about cash liquidity on the balance sheet and then i would look at what is the current cash flow situation is this a market where the company is generating more and more money or is this a market where they're burning money and if they're low on liquidity and they're burning money then i might not even want to buy even if it's a big discount nav so that's just that's that's again it's simple but that would be a starting point
0: do you find that when you're looking at these stocks i mean i know this is the case with many other sectors do you find that you're purposefully being confused by management the way that they you know put out their balance sheets and how they put their numbers in? Are they constantly throwing curveballs to try to make it more difficult or, or hide poor management?
1: I think there's a lot less of that than there used to be. Shipping okay. uh, in the 2000s and the early 2010s, uh, I sound old when I say way back in the 2000s. But, <laughs> way back but, in the day. <laughs> yeah, way back uh, 14 years ago. But no, I mean, the back then were a lot, I would say, sketchier, and the governance was not as strong. But all these balance sheets, at the end of the day, they're all audited. Uh, the numbers are fairly clear um, but you have to read all the disclosures you have to read the notes you can't just look at a balance sheet you have right. to get open you have to open up the annual report and and a lot of these are not US headquartered companies so if you're if you're investing in US headquartered companies like Apple you're used to a form called the 10q or the 10k For, those are of those course the, yeah the annual and quarterlies in shipping there's no quarterly mandatory filing there's only an annual recorded right. filing and it's called a 20f and right. so the 20f can be anywhere from 100 to like 400 pages and a lot of that's boilerplate. Like you have to know where to look. Uh, 300 when I first, pages of footnotes. Exactly. Well, when I first started investing in shipping and, that, and that's why like, you know, from experience in a service like ours, you can really save a lot of time because sure. like when I first started investing in shipping, I would legitimately like read the whole 300 page 20F. Oh my God. Bless and it'd be like you. a weekend. It'd be like <laughs> a weekend to read the damn thing. And, but then you realize that to 220 pages out of the 300 are the same year in and year out. They're just right. boilerplate. They never change. Right. You learn to focus for certain words. certain uh, subsequent events, related party transactions, convertible warrants, dilution, uh, going concern. Right? Right. <laughs> there's certain right. there's certain words that you look for. And I can read a 20F. I mean, not the entire thing, you know. I, but I can skim a 20F for like the pertinent info, uh, given what I know now in a company that I invest in, in 15 minutes.
0: Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, that was gonna be my next question. So like, you know, say I give you, you know, a stock that I want you to look at, talk about your process. Where, what, What is the first thing that you're gonna to do to research that stock? Are you gonna immediately go to the 20F? Are you gonna Google it? Are you gonna to go to their website? How do, how do you approach uh, your process to figure out exactly whether there's a trade to be had?
1: First of all, I, I stay in my lane. So if it's not the fifty or sixty companies that are in maritime shipping or directly related, I would be like, "Yo, Zach, cool stock, bro. Like that's 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 nice." <laughs> but uh, I don't know up from down. <laughs> you know? right, right, like, right. like I mean, I trust you, Zach. So maybe I'll throw some money at it to have fun with you. But uh, I I'm not going to give you an advice. So that's that's step one: is stay in your lane. If sure. you don't know what you're talking about, like don't act like an expert. Um, if it's an energy stock, I, I consult my energy expert. If it's like a, maybe a biotech, I might look for a guy that knows biotech. If it's a real estate, you get the idea. I stay in my lane. Sure. Um Well, step two. I mean, since I'm in my lane, I have covered all these companies for oh, years. Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah. Shortcut rule, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if I hadn't covered the company, I know, I know what you're getting at, Zach. If I hadn't covered it, uh, I look. I look first of all right away for red flags. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, balance sheet red flags, management red flags, related party transactions, things like that. Things that would just rule it off the table. Like right. I, I found so many red flags that I'm not going to waste the rest of my day or two with the stock i just write it scratch it off as azac red flags not right uh once i've done that then i then i would look at kind of the big picture like where is the cycle at is this the dry bulk stock is it a container stock where are we in the first inning the fifth inning or the eighth inning um then you look at all the multiples you know the price nav you look at the cash flow projections then i i reach out to management um and, and i'm at a stage in the game now where you know, we've been active in the shipping markets for more than ten years. Uh, most of the shipping management, not all of them, but I would say seventy-five percent of the companies that we cover, uh, I basically have the management. Uh, I, well, I don't really call them; I use email, but basically on speed dial. Right. Uh, I can get. They know you. Yeah, I can get to management in a day or two. Right. And the. They've joined us for interviews and podcasts. So I actually reach out to the management team and then talk to them. There's actually one company that we're, we're researching right now. I uh, haven't issued a research report, so I can't see the ticker or anything like that. But I'm actually in the process of meeting the management team next Monday. Um, so you know that's that's something we do before we invest.
0: That's awesome. So so all of these skills that you've acquired in the shipping sector and becoming an expert on these 50 or 60 stocks that you're talking about, like, do you feel like you could take any of the the research fundamentals that you're using in this sector and applying it somewhere else like do you see any other sectors that that can be uh dissected the same way that you
1: dissect uh in shipping yeah abso- absolutely but it has to fit some of like i don't want to say like first principles it's kind of cheesy but it has to fit some of those things it has to be kind of a smaller cap overlooked it has to have enough trading liquidity uh that sort of thing so there's a couple segments that i think apply fairly well and one of them is energy Mm-hmm. And we actually work very closely with, with a guy who does exceptional energy research. Uh, I, he's actually been, I think, to a Traders for Cause event, Michael Boyd, I think you met him. Yeah, Michael, of course, uh, yeah. Yeah, He's he would be a great guest to have on in a later episode to talk about energy. Because he does okay. basically the same thing I do in shipping, but he does it in energy. Okay. Energy is 10 times bigger than shipping. I was going to um, say, there's got to yeah. be a lot more yeah and i said 10 it's probably like 20 times bigger than sure. shipping uh energy is a good field for that so i, I know a lot of folks that are going to listen to this podcast probably have interest in energy you can do the same type of approach that i do with shipping in energy another one is mining like mining companies uh you know the gold miners and, and stuff like that the iron ore and, and things like that i don't have any expertise in those and, and that's something i've learned over the years if i don't have any expertise like it's fun to you know dude, we'll sit down and have a beer and like you know gripe and moan about like tesla stock or bitcoin or something <laughs> but like i i don't have anything of value to really add besides like you know just hanging out and shooting the shit so like I, i'm not gonna you know publish a blog talking about tesla stock i'm gonna right. focus on my lane and i, and I think traders who are chart focused and technical focused you know they can go out and get into all sorts of different stocks but people who are truly more value-oriented fundamental focus they need to be more selective on what they do i see
0: so do you bring technicals into your process at all or are you strictly fundamentals and you won't even open a chart
1: Well me personally you know it's like hieroglyphics you know it's like it's like interpretive dance you know so you know <laughs> me personally I am a fundamental guy through and through but right. I respect technicals So and I have folks that are on my research service who are just members we have about 500 members there and who share their own technical analysis and they do some phenomenal stuff I mean sure. I, and I use technicals to inform things like, uh, if I'm trying to build up a position, I use technicals to figure out where the resistance points are at, where the potential breakouts at, if it's a small cap position, really small, and I know where the breakout points are at, I know people are watching those. So of I course. build my position slower because I don't want to, I don't want the thing to break out before I'm done adding. you know, and, and, and resistance where the resistance points are at. So you get close to resistance, you start taking profits. And but <laughs> one thing I'll say about technicals is my view cynical and we'll just you know i'm sure this is gonna be fodder for subsequent attacks but they're they're like self-fulfilling prophecies like technicals work because people think they work and because people think they work they work so you know it, wow. it's kind of a it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy
0: that that's those are some powerful words well i had jc uh, from all <laughs> a few a few weeks ago and and i asked him if fundamentals play anything into the way that he trades and he just said you know he doesn't have any problem with people who study fundamentals he just thinks that anything fundamental is being displayed in the chart so he can look at the chart and he can you know determine what the guys that are doing the fundamental analysis are thinking by studying the chart so uh, what do you say to that i mean like
1: well, well. First of all, look. If it, if it's working for JC, like to keep it up, yeah. Like if it's working for you, don't switch it up, right? I mean, don't don't seize defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> you know, just right. keep keep running your race. But I, I think I, I would just you know, a little snarky response, but I would argue that JC hasn't spent a lot of time in shipping. <laughs> yes, that viewpoint. But well, I, I would but I would say, circling back to what I said I don't know, ten minutes ago or something. When you're in a very large name like Apple or Microsoft or Tesla or something like that, I can buy that argument look, I can buy that there's lots of smart people in there. I can buy that the market, efficient market hypothesis, I'm not really a believer in that, but but the bigger the stock gets, the more likely it's to be efficient, right? Sure. And so if JC's talking about Microsoft and Apple, when he says something like that, like, yeah, right on, like, I, I can't pick it apart. Now, if he's talking about uh, Deneos uh, Corp, you know, and shipping DAC, which was a 10-bagger for us, yeah. uh, you go back and look at the chart when we were buying hand over fist, and the chart was ugly. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. So, yeah, get out of here with that for shipping.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you're saying like the more eyeballs that you have on it, the more people who are actually studying it, the more, you know, technicals can really paint the picture that can result in a good trading decision.
1: Sure, and and I will mention since I threw out the Naos Corp DAC, and I'm long. I'm on top of my book. I mean, I invest in researching these names, so sure. nothing here is. We should have said this up front, but nothing I say on here is any sort of investment advice or trading advice. I just, I like the stock. You know, right, the classic. It's right. a classic roaring kitty get out of jail free card. Well, I just right. like the stock. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I like DAC. I like it a lot. Um, but I think now that it's. It's been a ten-bagger for us. Uh, we right. think there's another double at least left on it. But you know, now that there's more eyeballs on it, yeah, I think if JC looked at DAC today, DAC, he might be correct. There's, there's, it's, it's exhibited there. But it wasn't six months ago because, like you said, like we said, there, there was nobody looking at it. Right, makes sense.
0: So, let's talk about some of the key differences between the, the segments of shipping. I mean, you're, you obviously talk about a lot of them: dry bulk, container ships, oil tankers how are they different from each other
1: well First of all, I guess the most obvious difference is the cargo. It's completely, <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's completely a difference. Different. I, I pick the low hanging fruit, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> I, answer, I answer the easy questions first. But look, I mean, there's a total difference between the global demand for iron ore and coal right. versus liquefied natural gas. Like, it's two completely different things. It's like the price of uh, corn and soybeans versus. Uh, iron right it's like right. they're just different markets and and so that's the thing that i think a lot of people they, they miss like sometimes right. you know quantitative like, algo funds and stuff will trade shipping up one day and shipping down one day but you know one day the dry bulk market will be getting a lot stronger and one day the tanker market will be getting a lot weaker but the algos will move the stocks up and down together as a basket so that's oh, right. our okay. opportunity that's how we create alpha by trading against that we we can we can sell the losers into this stupid like algo driven bullish market and we can buy the winners when it goes down so that's how we differentiate and and create our alpha i'm giving away the secrets to the trade here but (laughs) but yeah the the shipping tends to move a little bit as a monolith right but over time three months six months maybe a year there's price discovery and the winners the, the the cream rises to the top right
0: so talk about you know in each sector of shipping you've you've said I've, I've heard you interviewed about this there's roughly six different areas is that accurate
1: Yeah I mean you can slice it and dice it more but I say yeah six broads good
0: So are there particular ones out of the six that typically do trade more along the same lines and then a couple outliers how do you how would you designate the six
1: Yeah so crude oil tankers and product tankers so product tankers like diesel jet fuel stuff like that refined products they call it clean products but it's still it's still oil <laughs> pretty stuff, dirty it's not really clean you know yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. jet yeah. fuel's not too clean but anyways um it, those two trade very closely with energy and oil so whenever oil's up the tankers are usually up whenever oil's down the tanker's usually down which oil prices have like nothing to do with tanker fundamentals so that's where we again that's where we create alpha but if people are just looking for correlates like if people are long tankers and want to hedge it i would say you can hedge by shorting some oil or, or some you know ship uh, energy stuff or if they're long energy they can maybe hedge that i'd be careful because it's then it's not liquid but they could hedge it a little bit by maybe putting puts or, or shorts on shipping so those are correlates like they move together uh the container ships are really logistics when you think about it because it's all retail goods It's like T-shirts and toasters and microwaves and stuff coming over from Asia. And so that's a completely different, completely different market. I mean, that's like Walmart, Amazon, Target, people going to the store and buying stuff. Best Buy, right? Right. And so that's totally different. It has like nothing to do with oil tankers. Right. Um, and, And so those stocks more so correlate with like logistics trades, like, you know, things like UPS and FedEx, the railroads, Union Pacific, stuff like that. Okay. Last fall, they, for whatever reason, were not correlating with logistics. They okay. were correlating with shipping because once again, shipping, if you're not like me, shipping's a monolith. And so, as you know, last year was was not a good year for shipping Right. and all these container stocks were just beaten down into the toilet, even though the logistics trade, I'm talking UPS, FedEx, XPO, stocks like that, there were like two or three baggers on the year and all these container ship stocks are in the toilet. And I'm like, that's not right. And so, again, top down, right? That's not right. This doesn't make sense. What sure. are the rates doing? What is the order book doing? And that's what led us last September. And it, it was very public. I, You probably got annoyed by me. I was tweeting about it so much, but that's what led us last September, October. And you can go to Twitter and verify this hand over fist. I was buying every container ship stock I could get my hands on. I was long. There was only like one stock. I wasn't long. <laughs> I was buying everything. Right. And, and, and some of those names um Navios containers 11 bagger, Danaos corp 10 bagger, uh Global Shiplease 3 bagger. I mean at every stock it was basically up.
0: Wow. Yeah. Awesome. So you mentioned before that there's no correlation between the price of oil and oil tankers.
1: Uh, Would- I fundamentally, uh, it, the stocks have correlation. Daily I, was, I was just
0: going to say, if the demand for oil is down, then the demand for shipping the oil would be down, would it not?
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of like the that's kind of like the general market thinking of it. Right. But it, it's not always what drives the tankers is the ton mile demand. So okay. not only how much oil you're moving on the water, but how far it's moving on the water. I see. And there's a lot of things that can influence the price of oil downward that might be bullish for tankers. Let me give you one example. If OPEC says, all right, the world economy's recovered, we're going to stop doing all these cuts and we're going to actually increase our exports, that would make oil prices crater, right? They'd drop $10 overnight right. if, if they came out with such a statement. Right. That sort of statement that craters the creators oil prices would be the most bullish possible thing for oil tankers because of course there's a flood of oil on the market. But the stocks are so stupid they probably probably trade together because there's all these machines and algos and and folks that trade those patterns. Got it. I shouldn't be saying this man. It's like it's like when you're playing poker, they they have a phrase like, you know, you don't tap the aquarium. (laughs) You know, like uh, if I keep saying this stuff it might not it might stop working.
0: Well everybody knows now that you're the expert so you know as much as analysis that they want to learn to do on their own uh, they should they should check out your service if they really want to dig into this stuff so uh just this week we talked about this dry bulk rates recently hit 11 year highs so aside from looking at individual uh dry bulk stocks to to find uh, potential trades is there a place where traders can kind of look to for sympathy plays uh, to this, you know, uh, phenomenon?
1: I See, remember that I'm, I'm pretty fundamental oriented. So sure. I'm, you know, if, if it's based on solely on the dry bulk stuff accelerating, I'm going to be mostly just focused on those dry bulk trades, to be honest. However, there are some correlates. And I think some of the correlates be miners, uh, some of the mining companies w- would be of a little bit more interest. And a lot of those have already moved. But, you know, things like Valet, uh, for example, uh, BHP, uh, Rio, uh, tento stuff like that uh would be interesting sort of sympathy plays because the dry bulk sector is moving up because you know the iron ore prices are moving up and there's a little bit more transport of that sort of thing so something like valet would would make sense i suppose um one thing i would note is for traders whenever something gets a little bit hotter and dry bulk started get hot uh, it, it, it creates more opportunity because the daily volumes are up and the, the sure. volatility of the stocks goes up a little bit so it it, it creates almost like more of a fun sort of profitable playground for you to come into and trade whereas some of these shipping names that i cover are fundamentally great companies like i love them Uh, but they're just not great trading stocks just they're boring they don't really do anything got it so i would say more so whenever i'm posting about something say i love the dry bulk stocks if you're a trader and you don't really want to own and invest the company you're just a day trader or maybe you own for a week or two oh Meyer's talking about dry bulk stocks okay cool volumes are probably going to go up um I'm agnostic long short like if a guy comes in and trading short and he makes money like dude good for you man keep it up I I don't care I I like liquidity bring it on
0: what 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 constitutes an exciting move to you I I'm just making an inside joke here because yesterday you sent me a a stock and you said hey check this out there's here's a shipping stock that that's cratering and it was down 10 percent and I made a joke because you know for to a day trader they're not looking for a ten percent move. They're looking for a 60 percent move. You know that that ultimate volatility. So is ten percent like off the charts when it comes to these shipping stocks and and a, and a daily
1: move? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's off the charts, but it all depends on what instrument you're using. Like sure. if you're using at the money. Or in the money calls or puts, uh, a ten sure. percent move can double your money. Of course. So I mean, who are we talking to here? I mean, are we talking to some guy who's who's, who's putting five hundred dollars on you know one stock? Yeah, dude, like ten percent up. you like, talking talking oh, about can, degenerate can, gamblers I can, here. Guys. I can go to. <laughs> hey, I lived in Vegas for four years. I can <laughs> like, I can get down with that. But no, I mean, if you don't want to just pay for a dinner at Red Lobster, yeah, you might, <laughs> you, might you might you might want more than ten percent. But no, I look I, if it's not the daily swing that I care about. Look, I mean, it's if I own a stock for two or three months, it's the total profit I make in three months. And, you know, exponential powers come in. So you might say three or 4% a day is boring, but 1.04 to the power of 25. And give me the math on that, you know,
0: where's the sweet spot for this? Are you saying that? Are you suggesting that given the, you know, how this industry and this sector is is cyclical, that like a swing trading style strategy is what would probably work best utilizing your research
1: i believe so i that's kind of what i do um i am a fundamentalist value guy at heart but i do a lot of i call it cycle trading and and i talked about the baseball analogy i'm not a classic value buy and hold guy like i'm not coming in here and saying like buy this company and just like go to sleep and forget about it like no, shipping that's the wrong industry for you brother what's the what's
0: the longest position that you have right now in your portfolio
1: Uh, like like longest term that i've had yeah the longest
0: longest term hold that you have in your
1: current portfolio um i i don't want to i'm pretty sure it's um let me think about this a little bit um i think it's dorian lpg i'd have to pull up my spreadsheet i have like 27 28 active positions i'd have to pull it up to give you 100 percent like honest to god answer but i'm pretty sure it's dorian lpg and how long Uh, have you had it uh i've traded in and out of it but i've had i've been long at i've been at least partially long for like four years Wow.
0: Yeah. That's, and that's, that's, a, that's like a, an eternity.
1: That isn't that. That's very long for me. But look, I mean, but that doesn't mean that I bought it four years ago and I never sold a share. Sure. Of course. I, you know. Take profits. Yeah. And, I, and I, 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 at one point it's a triple size position. At one point it's a half size position, but it's such a good value oriented, strong company, good management, good capital allocation, beautiful macro picture that I could not, not double negative. I could not, not be long. I had to have something there. Had, had to be in it, right? Yeah, had to be in it.
0: All right, very interesting. Okay, let's move on to some questions that we got from some of our, uh, we, we actually went out on Twitter and asked for some questions that people oh, wanted to ask you. So this one is from a gentleman named Ravel. I, b- I believe that's how we say his name, R-A-V-E-L. So he says, Jay is providing deep analysis, which he's a big fan of, but he rarely never mentions or weighs possible detrimental impact of carbon regulations on earnings or NAV of shippers. Will non-eco fleets suffer, or is it not worth to be dramatized? For me, I sense a strong impact on shippers who just reject the start of the transition to eco. Wow! What well, say you?
1: Thank you, Ravel. That was a no. That's a that's a really solid question. Um, I think we could probably spend an entire podcast on on something like the ESG impacts and carbon stuff on shipping. Sure. Uh, long answer, short. Uh, it's another sort of situation where the first take is. The broad consensus is kind of going to be wrong on this because people are going to say, oh, more regulations are coming to shipping. That's bad. That's going to drive profits down. Uh, The reality could not be further from the truth. The more regulations and the more restrictions that you place on shipping, the better and the bigger profits we're going to make. And the reason why is the number one way, a technologically proven way to cut emissions in shipping is to reduce the speed at which all the vessels travel.
0: I heard you talking about this yeah, with, with Chris. The,
1: the vessel emissions curve is like exponential. Um, the difference between, and it's different for every ship. So don't like quote me in science. I, I don't have a, a PhD in, in, in this topic, but, uh, you know, we're looking at the exponential curve of the shippers and the difference between like 10 knots and like 13 knots uh, to use one example, you would think, Oh, that's like 20, 30%. Cause that's the speed difference. The emissions difference is more than like double. Hmm. Very So interesting. if every single shipping asset in the world had a speed limit of, you know, 10 or 11 knots uh, we would reduce emissions from shipping overnight by somewhere in the range of like 30 to like 40%. I mean, it would be, it would do wonders. It would be the easiest thing to do for global warming uh, you could possibly think of. However, think of what happens to the supply and demand if you force every single ship in the world to travel (laughs) that much slower. I mean, you would have astronomical shipping rates like that you could not believe. So that's just one example. So drive
0: up the prices of everything, essentially. Exactly.
1: So that's part one. That's one thing. That's one thing. There's a lot more to look at. So one more thing, and I could list like 10, but one more thing to look at is the more and more regulations you have on these emitters, on these high polluting vessels, the less and less uh, competitive they're going to be in the market. And the more and more competitive the modern tonnage with eco design is going to be. And most of the companies that we're invested in have heavy proportions of eco design modern tonnage so not only are rates going to go up because vessels are slowing down uh the old crusty rusty stuff is going to get squeezed out of the market and we're going to make even bigger profits with our modern tonnage those are two things we could probably list 10 if we kept going
0: do you think that these uh, price hikes are going to be passed right along to the consumer do you think our consumer goods are going to continue to go up
1: You know, I I think for the most part, yes. And, And I think it's the same way for energy. I think at the end of the day, like utility bills are gonna go up, gasoline prices are gonna go up, that's part of it. If we really care about global warming, if we're being true to ourselves and we actually prioritize this, we have to pay the bill. It's not free money. Like I like, think costs are going to go up. And, and that's that's the tax of living in a clean, environmentally conscious society. And it's a tax I'm willing to pay. And I think every every person should be willing to pay that tax. I will say one thing to revel and, and maybe it's the fault of, of Twitter. You know, Twitter has character limits, and I don't publish full reports on there. But we pay very close attention to the regulations. Um, it, we're paying very close attention to this stuff. And, and so it's, it's not something we, we just wish wash. Of course. You're foolish not to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, i Ravel said that, right? He said that the companies that that don't pay attention are going to are going to lose. And he's correct. Right. Makes sense.
0: All right. Next question is from Arturo. Why would the average institutional investor get on board the shipping sector when it's so volatile and cyclical? Is the long term compelling demand story the most decisive factor? Low order book also seems a good one, but it can change dramatically in just 15 months.
1: Yeah, Arturo is asking, asking a great question because we don't have a lot of long-term buy-only, uh, long-only type funds, institutional funds in shipping. In fact, most of the institutions we have in shipping are either boutique hedge funds or their family offices or they're more so like private equity where they like invested in like a five or six or seven year time horizon. They wanted to buy some new ships and private equity came in and, and footed the bill. Uh, private equity has a terrible track record in shipping. Uh, they've lost money on almost all their investments. So yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot of institutions in, in shipping and we would love to see that change. So I'm glad Arturo is thinking about that. That's like the next level. That's how do we get shipping back to a realistic, reasonable multiple. And the number one argument I would make if I was selling this to institutions is a lot of these are non-correlated keyword non-correlated alternative assets right these are assets that the actual results of the company don't necessarily depend on the s p 500 or the nasdaq or the russell these are alternatives like buying timberland or something like that and so but that's a legitimate (laughs) like you laugh but timberland is actually a legitimate allocation like i i studied for the cfa and there's actually an entire chapter on forestry at timberland talk that's about right. niche right like right. timberland makes shipping look like it's <laughs> like it's diapers <laughs> it's legit there's and, and that's something i think insurance companies with big floats uh, companies like prudential and Allstate and, and berkshire and stuff like that uh i think they're foolish to not have one or two or three percent in, in shipping
0: okay the next question these are these are going to be uh quicker ones brian asks can you discuss the dynamics of Zim's asset light model versus other container companies that are asset heavy, how booming rates and rising asset prices affect each differently?
1: Uh, oh, another good question. I, I think probably some framing because I, I think this is more a generalist podcast, people are like what the hell is Zim? Uh, <laughs> Zim integrated was a company that came public at the end of January and they came public in the worst possible time. And they came public the week of the GameStop, like, Fiasco. Sure, of course. And that caused their IPO. First of all, nobody was paying attention to it because everyone was like, you know, on on Wall Street bets, you know, making snarky comments and up and down voting. But, uh, no, first of all, nobody was paying attention to it. Second of all, there were some people in the market, myself included, who were legitimately concerned that that thing could spiral out of control. And so a lot of people pulled out of the offering and the initial public, it was a flop. It's one of the worst marketed and poorly performing IPOs I'd ever seen. It was supposed to be 16 to 19. Oh, it's the pricing range, right? And, and normally in an IPO, when it's sixteen to nineteen, it means it prices at nineteen or twenty, it trades to twenty-five. That's like a normal IPO. Right. Well, this yeah. thing was marketed sixteen to nineteen, priced at fifteen, dropped to eleven fifty the first day. Ouch! Oh my goodness. We, I, I was looking at this thing. I'd been reading the filings, and everything I read about the company was too good to be true. I had to call up some trusted, like basically associates and friends and stuff, and say, "Hey, take a look at this for me." am I, am I cross-eyed? Do I need to, like, do I need to get some, some, this too good to be true? Like this thing trades at like one times forward earnings. Right, what right. the hell is going on here? Right. And so I couldn't believe it. And, and so I, I spent a week or two just sanity checking myself. And then we bought the thing hand over fist 11, between 11 and 14 hand over fist. And I we're recording on Friday, 23rd. I, I don't, I don't have the price chart in front of me, but I think it's like 31 bucks. So we basically almost tripled two and a half times our money in what, two or three months. So that's a background to folks. That's why r uh, uh, he is asking about about Zim because otherwise like we cares about Zim. Zim is asset light, which means they charter in all their ships. They don't own the ships. Okay. And when they IPO'd, people were using this as like a negative. Oh, they don't own any ships. Okay, so what? Like they're, they have the ships chartered they have the control of the market and asset light means that they charter the ships in for one year two years or three years. So they say, I want to, I want to take a shipping lane from uh, let's say China to the West coast, United States. I need uh, four ships for that. I'm going to go lease those ships. I'm going to go rent them for, for three years. And if I don't like the market in three years, I give the ship back. I think the asset light, is the way to go i, I i'm like I, I view it the other way around like why the hell not be asset light um so that's the advantage to Who it are is they that you're leasing you can, them from you scale it up they're leasing them from uh, i am biased they're leasing them from the companies i own <laughs> uh which you know i'm i tell you man I'm, i mean i eat my own cooking but i talk my book and i'm long Zim, very long Zim. i really like the stock but they're leasing ships from danao's corp They're leasing ships from Global Ship Lease, uh, from Navios Partners. They're leasing ships from all the companies I own. But it's two different types of plays. One play is like industrial. I'm going to own an asset. I'm going to lease it out. The other play is like a service provider. Mm -hmm. So think of like UPS and FedEx. Like those are like the people who are doing the shipping. But underneath, there's companies and banks and institutions that actually own and lease those aircraft. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes sense. So that was a long answer to a short question. So I apologize, but no, no some good worries. Color.
0: Uh, I think this is a good question. Ended on. Uh, Bevan asks, "What are your current top three recommendations in the dry bulk sector?" Ooh. All right.
1: Hey, yeah, he cuts to the, man. He's getting all cuts the to, cuts <laughs> to the core. <laughs> cuts right to the core. Start with this one in the comment section. Someone can put like a timestamp. Like Jay Minsmire said something useful at timestamp forty two <laughs> thirty five. Like thanks, Dick. But you, uh, well, you
0: could say just subscribe to my service. Then maybe you'll know my top three picks. Yeah,
1: right? you know that's kind of the douchey way around it. You know, so maybe we won't do top three because that is kind of unfair, I think, to my subscribers. But I'm not gonna just be, you know, oh, subscribe to my service. Um, look, I'll tell you some of the stuff that I've I'm already bought. I've already bought it, I'm already long it. Um, that way my subscribers already had, you know, they had a chance to buy and, and get in there. Um, so one of them that we've been long in the past uh, is a, a safer more risk-reward play. There's a lot less downside if the market crashes. Right. That also means there's a lot less upside if the market goes up, but it's more for the more conservative guys. Less, less volatile. Exactly. And right. that's Genco shipping, G-N-K. Okay. And I'm long the stock. I actually just took some profits on it. I, I bought it in nines. I just sold some at 1350 So I, I might sell some more in the future. Like I'm talking my book here, guys, but that's a risk-reward play. Okay. Now I'll give you one that's a little bit more uh let's say volatile a little, it has edgy. Some, a little edgy um safe bulkers stock symbol s b uh that little guy has has some leverage um it, it, when a market's going up you want leverage to like your eyeballs right you want the most debt possible but you also want a management team that's trustworthy sure and safe bulkers has both of it they have a huge leverage but they have very strong cash liquidity so the leverage is not dangerous it's the perfect type of leverage. it's like it's like having a 30-year mortgage on a house so you have a lot of leverage but there's no like there's no fear there's no concern and the management team is trustworthy i've, I've watched these guys for 13 years now 14 years and, and they've always been fair they've always been good actors they've always paid big dividends when they can afford them this company is like uh it's like 80 percent leverage right now so it's kind of like buying um it's almost like buying Danaos Corp last fall. When I bought Danaos Corp last fall, I was buying that thing for five dollars, and it's like, again, I don't have the chart in front of me. It's like 51 bucks today or something. Uh, you can pull it up if you want and give people an updated quote. Uh, Safe Bulkers was like $1.50 or something like that, and that would be its dollar 50 equivalent to Danaos at five. Safe Bulkers now is a little bit over 250. Um, if dry bulk is the real thing, like if this thing comes true. <laughs> We don't know yet. We think it will, but we we never know until it happens, right? But if dry bulk is like the real deal, safe bulker could triple, quadruple. I mean, it's a it's a slammer. We love it. Um, so that's I, I would say GenCo on risk reward, and and safe bulkers is kind of like the exciting, you know, volatile play.
0: As exciting as we can be in the shipping sector. Well, right? dude, if
1: you don't think a three or four packer exciting, like I, man, check your head, right? Yeah, check your head. Check yourself.
0: Cool, Jay. Well, I want to thank you for being on today, and uh, I want to give you a chance to plug your service. I, you know, you gave me some unaudited uh, results of of uh, Value Investors Edge and, and how well you guys have done over the years. Annualized, I'm looking at 38.8 uh, percent return over uh, you know since you since your inception. So, uh, take take a second and kind of plug what you guys do and, and why uh, why people would be wise to make an investment in uh, in learning.
1: Yeah, look, Zach, and, and I always put a disclosure in those too. Like it's unaudited, it's presented from our model portfolios. You can track them. You can see all the same performance, but it's not audited. It's not a solicitation. This is not an investment product. I do not manage I do not manage people's money. I do not provide direct investment advice. I'm not gonna tell you, you should put 10% of your portfolio in XYZ stock, sure. right? What we do is we are a research platform. We provide what I believe, I'm biased, I'm selling the product, but I believe we provide the world's best shipping intelligence platform for investors. Okay. I don't think there's anything out there better than what we provide. Okay. And I i, I stand by that. Um, and so if people really wanna get into this market and they wanna trade, you don't, you can invest, you can trade, you can do anything you want. But if you're gonna be involved in one of these symbols, I think you have to be on our platform, you have to be engaged. We have an active chat room where we have about 500 members and we have 100 plus that are very active in our chat room and they're always posting the latest news, they're posting the latest trends, they're getting in discussions about what stocks look better and what some of the risk factors are. So think about like leveraging your potential, right? You're not just doing stuff on your own, you got you know 500 other members that are also sharing ideas. You can use our analytics platform. You can cut your, and I'm not, you still have to do all your own due diligence, but it can cut, it might take you a week to figure one of these names out. You can read our reports and figure it out in an hour or two.
0: That's terrific. Well, I can't think of a better pitch for it than that. I mean, nobody likes doing research except for you. So, Uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's true. No one wants
1: to geek out as, as much as I do, but Hey, it's, it's lucrative. Right. And if it wasn't making money, if it wasn't a good thing for us, like we would, we'd be in, we'd be in mining or we'd be in energy. Right.
0: Of course. Makes sense. Well, Jay, thanks for being on the Traders for Cause podcast. Appreciate uh, everything that you do and for your support of Traders for Cause over the years. And hopefully uh, we make it back to Vegas, whether it's going to be this year or not is still up in the air, but uh, we always appreciate your support and, and being a part of the
1: organization. So, uh, Absolutely, Zach. It's such a great thing. And, and I wish more folks, like, I, I think you have a pretty good penetration, so to speak, in the trader world. Yeah. But I, I think in the investor world, there's not quite as many folks who have gotten on board with, with kind of Traders for Cause and what you guys do. And and I hope that changes going forward because I what you guys do is so cool. Like, you're combining kind of that networking with like education, right? Helping folks learn more yeah. and the the most important thing of, of the charitable giving and giving back. And, and I just hope to see the community continue to grow. And I, fingers crossed for Las Vegas, October, 2021, fingers crossed, but obviously we got to watch the COVID trends and, and whatnot.
0: Absolutely, Jay's on Team Vegas, if you couldn't tell. <clears throat>
1: Chomp, chomping at the bit to get back there, obviously. Oh, I miss, I miss it. Boston's, fun. Boston's great and all, but look, I, I've been to Encore Boston Harbor now and it just, it's just not, not Vegas. Same. No, no, no.
0: Are you a, are you a Vegas townie or is that where you're originally from? Born and
1: raised? i'm from uh, southwest arizona so okay. uh, regionally yes um but but i'm not really a big you know vegas person before i i move there but i just like i like everything about vegas the people there are great they're hard-working folks uh the tax regime in vegas is, is very good there's uh, some of the best restaurants and entertainment in the world there's so many things to like about las vegas the only thing i don't like about it is the summers the yeah, summers are unbearable yeah well
0: you say southwest arizona that's like yuma right oh I mean... it's
1: worse than, yes it's worse than in vegas but that's
0: why i got the hell out of there. So you you were you so you were born in Yuma? Um, I was actually born in Anchorage, Alaska. So yeah just gets more and more complicated it gets we're going to so go many layers avenue. of the onion here so
1: many layers but but i was i went to high school and I, all my most of my friends and stuff are, are from southwest Arizona. like that's my hometown my hometown is dateland arizona that's what i call my
0: hometown you you are from dateland you're kidding me you know me. about you know about dateland absolutely because i've driven from san diego to tucson se- oh, on several occasions so world i've stopped i've stopped in dateland i've gotten a shake i've bought Brother, man i've i've bought them
1: you single-handedly stimulated the local economy. I didn't think that anybody economy.
0: actually lived there. Are you
1: serious? Uh, that- I am
0: from Dateland, Arizona. There is a population to Dateland.
1: There, is, I, I went to the K through eight school, Dateland Elementary School, and we had 220 students K through eight when I was there. Um, yeah, no kidding. We had a post office. We had one grocery store. The grocery store shut down, unfortunately. Uh, we have a gas station. So does gas.
0: everybody shop at, at the Dateland uh, Mini Mart now? Like, you know, the, the the truck stop? Is that where if everybody you, gets their groceries?
1: If you if you want something more than, than a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread, you got to travel 30 something miles, man, it's Oh it's my crazy. God, yeah. that's brutal. I went 30, I drove 30, well, I took the bus, but eventually I drove 35 miles each way to high school.
0: Jay, I think we're sitting on a gold mine here if we find an Instacart for Dateland. Oh man.
1: Well, there's only, there's only like 1200, you know, customers. So <laughs> 1,
0: 200, 200, Well,
1: you know, yeah, it's a niche yeah. market, right? <laughs> it, very niche. Very niche.
0: <laughs> All right, Jay. Well, thank you again for being with me. And uh, in the meantime, trade profit, make a difference, everybody. And we'll uh, see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Zach.